I was thinking about worship. In fact, I was thinking about worship and marriage. Worship can be a lot like marriage. You ever thought about that? It's a wonderful thing. It's a relational thing. And it can be a wonderful and vibrant relationship, this thing called worship and this thing called marriage. Or they might not be. In fact, after a while, sometimes things begin to cool off. The passion is not there any longer. And, and it's, it's uh, you know, you move, you move from devotion to duty to distraction and to departure. Am I, am I still talking about worship or, or marriage? That fits, doesn't it? You know, the same, same thing we experience in human relationship, we experience in our worshipful relationship with God. From, do, from devotion, it's wonderful, I want to be here, I want to experience the presence of God and, and, and to delight in his glory, to I need to come to church because that's what I'm supposed to do, to, to duty, to, to distraction of other things and things that get in the way, to finally departure, it's not important any longer. Worship can be missing a sense of life and vitality. In fact, Queen Victoria said this. She said, the only statistic that I can remember is this. If all of the people who fall asleep in worship were laid down end to end, they'd be a lot more comfortable. (laughs) But worship shouldn't be a place for falling asleep. Worship should be a place for waking up. Worship shouldn't be a place where our eyes close. Worship should be a place where our eyes are opened. Worship should not be boring. And, and in the Bible, in fact, what I will call God's manual for worship, the book of Leviticus, worship is not boring. Worship is graphic. Worship is hands-on. Worship is participatory. Worship is memorable. Worship is for us to know something important. Worship is, is, to, is, is a celebration of a people's access into the presence of God. But how can that be? How can we, as we are, have access into God's presence? How can we enter the presence of God? Is that possible for sinful humanity to come into the presence of God? That's the problem of Leviticus. Because... As we've been on Route 66, we started in the, in the book of Genesis, and very quickly on Route 66, we veered off the road into the fall of sin and the conflict that results. But that fall in Genesis, that veering off the road, sets us up nicely for the book of Exodus, which is a redemption out of bondage into new life. But how will we live in that new life? Genesis ends with a people redeemed and in the presence of God. But how does a sinful people How does a sinful people relate to a righteous God? That's the problem that the book of Leviticus answers for us. Genesis was a traveling book. People are going up and down, mostly down. But there's a lot of traveling going on in Genesis, and so also there's traveling going on in the book of of Exodus. Moses flees to Egypt, and then he comes back from Egypt. Then he takes and he leads God's people out of Egypt into into, across the Red Sea and, and toward that new life that God has for them, into their destiny. It's a traveling book, but now we've, we've, we've pulled off the road. We've taken a rest stop, if you will, at Mount Sinai. We're, we're going to camp here for a while. I know there's no camping and rest stops. I'm not trying to break the law here. But, 
the, 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 we, we pause in the book of Leviticus and we don't travel for a while because before we go on, there's something important that we need to know about. Before we go anywhere, we need to get clearly how is it that we can have relationship with the Holy God. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is Israel's worship manual. How will we worship both in liturgy and in life. What do I mean by liturgy? Liturgy is the form and the traditions, often good form and structure. How do we worship God in a structured way? How do we worship God in an everyday way? How do we worship God in liturgy and in life? How do we worship God on Sunday and on Monday? How do we worship God in the sanctuary? How do we worship God among society? Leviticus is a book of worship. Leviticus has much to tell us about how we will worship God. The first half of the book of Leviticus is, is, um, is, that, is that first half of my expression, worship in liturgy. How is it that Israel should approach God, should worship God in a formal way? Leviticus has much to say about worship. The first thing you notice about, uh, as, as you turn to the book of Leviticus, you notice about Israel's liturgy of worship is, is in that form, in that structure, in that tradition, there's a lot of blood. This is a, a graphic and sometimes gory form of worship that has. As you look at the first half of the book of Leviticus, you find there are sacrifices and offerings. There's a lot of them. And they just go on and on and on and on. In fact, when you read through the Bible, you get to the book of Leviticus and you begin to grind down in those sacrifices and you're thinking, oh my God, another, another, another lamb is going to die here? Another goat, another bull, another turtle dove, those poor little, what's going on here? What is with all, doesn't God like animals? What's, what's going on here? There's, there's the preparation of the priesthood, the priest to represent these people to God. There's the clean and the unclean. It's interesting, cleanliness in this first half of, of Leviticus deals especially with two things. And it's kind of confusing. It seems like God's got some hang-ups here. But, but the cleanliness in, um, revolves especially around two things. Human reproduction and things relating to that and skin diseases, including leprosy. There's all kinds of other things that relate to uncleanliness. Why the two emphasis, as far as ceremonial uncleanness, why the two emphasis on those two things? It goes back to Genesis. Of uh, A fallen Adam and Eve will now in sin conceive their offspring. Even human reproduction is now tainted. And sin is passed from generation to generation from Adam forward. The, the skin disease and the uncleanness related to that relates to the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden when now they realize that they are unclothed. Their skin is visible. They are naked. They are vulnerable. Interesting that those two come up again in Leviticus as far as that uncleanliness. But, but then the first half of the book um, ends in, in the uh, climax is really in the Day of Atonement, the highest holy day of Israel, when all of the nation assembles together. And in one sacrifice, one sacrificial uh, element, which includes that scapegoat, by the way, which we're going to talk about a little more, they, in, that, in that offering, in that day, all of the sins of the people are forgiven and are removed and are no longer held against them. Anything that may not have been covered or thought of in any other sacrifice, whether you remembered your sin or not, whether you were aware of it or not, it is all removed in this tradition, in this ritual of the Day of Atonement. Okay? 
This is the worship of God in liturgy. It's a corporate worship. It's God's people coming together in worship. Let me give you a couple of examples of it. Let's dig into the book of Leviticus a little bit and see what's there. Open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. We'll look at the first five verses. Leviticus chapter 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find us on page 71. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. I love that name for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. This is the place where humanity meets with God. And he said to them, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, here's some instructions. He's to offer a male without defect, without any fault. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, That's where the bronze altar was. That's where the altar of sacrifice was. So that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You don't just offer your offering anyway. You don't just build an offering, an an altar out in your field somewhere and sacrifice your your sheep or your your other offering out there. You bring it to God's presence. You bring it to this tabernacle, which is called the tent of the meeting, the place where I approach God. You bring it there. he's He's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. The offerer identifies himself with this animal that's to be offered. This animal is dying in his place. He's gonna, he, he, I, he lays on his hands and identifies himself with the animal, transferring his guilt onto the head of this animal, this innocent animal that's going to die in his place. He lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted on his behalf in his place to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood, sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and then on it goes into how you finished with this offering. So there you have a practice that's true. There's all kinds of offerings that we find in the book of Leviticus. There's a burnt offering. There's the grain or the unleavened bread offering. There are sin offerings. There are peace offerings. There are guilt or trespass offerings. One after another in those first seven chapters. When I realize that I have sinned, I need to come before the Lord, and I, and I come by means of an offering that is going to be offered in my place. It's going to bear my guilt in my place. It's going to be killed, be offered, be sacrificed for my sin. That's the picture that's going on. It's a very graphic picture, isn't it? It's, somebody could not take that, take that livestock, that, that sacrifice that they brought, and lay their head on it, confess their sin over this animal, And it's no longer just some um, random ritual that you say and go through. This is personal. This is real. This is, may I say it, hands-on. It leaves an impression. Hebrews 10 speaks of these sacrifices. Hebrews 10 10 and verses 1 through 10 is a good explanation, a New Testament explanation in the realization of Christ why we don't bring sacrifices to church any longer, why we don't come with some sacrifice, some animal, whether it be a sheep or a goat or a turtle dove or anything, why we don't do that. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come. Not the reality themselves. The law is a shadow. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? If these sacrifices could make someone perfect, they wouldn't have to keep bringing them. 
That's his point. But these sacrifices continue as a reminder year after year of the people's, people being reminded of their sin and their need for a substitute because a substitute would ultimately provide it. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them even though the law required them to be given, it says. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the law, the sacrifices, he sets aside the first in order to establish the second. By that will, the writer explains, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, so the Old Testament sacrifices, those were to portray, those were to tell us something about the sacrifice who would come, the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were meant to reveal. Read them realizing this is meant to portray in a very real, in a very graphic way, in a costly way. In a shocking and scandalous way, this is what sin requires. This is the death that sin brings. And it's not about the animals. God would send his own son because that's what sin requires. That's what sin looks like. The horror of those offerings. There's fascinating pictures in these Old Testament sacrifices. Two that I'll mention. The first one, Leviticus 14, is the cleansing of a leper. Interesting. We have a skin disease today. We go to the doctor. Someone had a skin disease in, in, in Israel. They would go to the priest. And in the cleansing of this leprosy, which is supposed to be an incurable disease, but in the cleansing of this leprosy that was, that was provided for under the law, one of the parts of it is you would take two birds, two doves, and you would take one of those doves and you would put it in, a, in an earthen vessel, a clay pot. Scripture compares earthen vessels to our own frail humanity. You take that bird, you put it in an earthen vessel, and there you would kill it. Okay? And the, and the earthen vessel collects the blood. And you take the other bird, the live bird. The second bird looks just like the first bird. They're identical. You take the second bird and you dip its wings in the blood of the bird that was killed. You, dip, you identify the second bird with the first bird in its death. And then what happens? That live bird is set free. Why? Death and resurrection. Christ, was, Christ died for our sin, for our guilt, and he is raised because of our justification. Both his death and his resurrection couldn't be portrayed in one bird because the bird was dead. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead because our sins, having been paid for, are now forgiven. Another example where, where it takes more than one is that Day of Atonement I talked about earlier. There were offerings that were brought. There was a sin offering that was brought. And even, even the tabernacle needed to be cleansed from, from human guilt. Even the tabernacle was tainted. And even the altar was tainted. And the priest had to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, first for himself and then for the people. Jesus didn't have to offer any sacrifice for himself. He was perfect. And then, as part of that, two things happen. There are two goats. 
and they draw straws. And you didn't want to be the losing goat. Because they would draw straws for the goats, and one of the goats would be killed. And, and that goat would be killed, its blood would be shed, and it's, 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 it's an offering for the guilt of the people. The, the, then the other goat, the goat of removal it's called, or the kids, the scapegoat. The scapegoat is then, is then brought into the mix, and the scapegoat, the priest can, lays his hands on, and for the whole nation, all the people, he, he confesses the sins of the people upon this goat. And then what do they do? They take that goat away. They lead it off into the wilderness, away, away, far away to a solitary place, a place where there are no people, a place from which that goat will never return. Because as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's why it's called the goat of removal, the scapegoat. When you hear somebody talking about a scapegoat, I remember Jesus. It wasn't put on him. He bore our sins willingly upon himself there on that cross that we would, be, would die to sin and live to righteousness, Peter says, for by his stripes we're healed. Jesus is our scapegoat. He's our goat of removal. Our sins have been forever carried away, taken away. All right, there's the scapegoat. All of this worship and liturgy, as old-fashioned as it is, as outdated as it seems, in ways that we do not practice today, they tell us things about our worship. What does it tell us? What do these things tell us about our worship? What Christ-centered worship in liturgy looks like? First of all, our worship is about Christ. The things we say, the way that we pray, the, th the songs that we sing, it all needs to be centered on Christ. It's not even about our devotion so much as it is Him and what He has done, who He is. That's what our souls long for. Our souls don't need to sing so much how devoted I am and how I will serve you as much as our souls need to sing who He is and what He has done. And to remind ourselves that you and I were made to worship. We were made to worship together in liturgy. But that worship is to be about Christ. It's Christ-centered. It focuses on Him. Nothing else. The, the offerings, the scapegoat, the, clean, the live bird set free, all of these things portrayed to and pointed to Christ, even as Hebrews 10 tells us. Worship is to proclaim Christ. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word about Christ, he's the focus. Dwelling you richly, aboundingly, overflowing you as you teach and admonish one another. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord, let those songs be about him. In worship, we act out the sacrifice of Christ. We remind ourselves of it and our participation in it. When you come to this table later, you might come individually and be served by one of those serving the tables. You might come as a, as a family unit or as a, as a circle of friends. Or perhaps when others in your row get up, you're going to say, well, you know, that's the time. We're going to come forward. We're going to come forward and take of the Lord's table this morning. We're going to do it a little bit differently. But as we do that, you will hear those words. You will remember again, the body of Christ was given for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we remind ourselves, even in a hands-on, tangible way, as our Lord gave us to do. Worship in liturgy must be about Christ. Secondly, worship in liturgy is participative, not passive. The people were involved. 
It wasn't this, you show up and watch, and one of the priests will lead out a sacrifice. No, most of the offerings, day after day, were offerings brought by the people. It was participative. You don't come to worship to listen and hear others sing or merely to have somebody else pray. We come in worship to sing and to pray, and not only to have somebody preach, but to have everybody listen and to, and to joy in the Word of God together. Worship is participative. It's not passive. Finally, our worship, Christ-centered, Christ-centered worship in liturgy is first individual and then corporate. Leviticus starts with an individual bringing an offering because of his own sin. The first half of Leviticus, worship and liturgy, ends in the Day of Atonement where the whole assembly together is sharing in one single offering. It is first individual and then it is together or corporate. First individual, have you received Christ yourself first? Coming to church and gathering with other people that have does not make you a Christian. Believing on Jesus as your own Savior, as the one who died for your own guilt, just like for my guilt, just like for yours, that is what makes you a Christian, that he died not for the sins. I believe for several years that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That did not make me a Christian. When I realized that not only so, but he died for my sin, that made me a Christian. I trusted in that. I was acceptable by God because Jesus had died not for everybody, but for me. It was first individual, and then it's together. We can only worship together if we're able to worship. Do you come ready to worship? Do you come already prepared with a song in your heart, with a praise on your lips, with the word of God tucked away, your focus in the day? You know what I'm preaching on next week. Will you come with something from that book? Oh, by the way, I'm not preaching next week. We're having a guest speaker speaking on prayer. Oops. But watch the BP blast. Watch that email blast. You will know what he's speaking on. Do you prepare yourself ahead of time to hear the word of God so that your worship will be first individual and then together? That's worship in liturgy. Worship, but worship is not only in liturgy in the book of Leviticus. Worship is also worship in life. The first half was worship in liturgy. The second half is worship in life. Here we see some examples of that from verses 18 to 27 in the book of Leviticus. Again, big picture view of the book as a whole. First half, worship in liturgy. Worship on Sunday. Second half, worship in life. Worship on Monday. Worship in the sanctuary. Worship out in society. All right? Worship in life. What does it look like? Well, he addresses things like relationships and purity. He addresses things like respect and mercy and justice one to another. How do we treat one another? How do we, how do we care for those who have less than we do? How do we exercise justice both towards the poor and to the rich? Interesting, Leviticus has a means of welfare. The gleaning of the field that actually has a means of providing for the poor while maintaining for them the dignity of doing something to provide for themselves still. 
Leviticus, Leviticus has a provision of mercy that even if bad mistakes were made in the family or circumstances came upon them that were of no fault in their own, either way, they had to sell away their fields and their lands in order to get by, even sell themselves into indentured servitude because there was no other way. They couldn't provide for themselves any longer. And yet every 50th year was a reset. Every 50th year was complete forgiveness and restoration. And whatever land was your family's land would be returned back to you no matter how it was lost. That's all built in to this worship in life. We worship God in life in relationship one to another. There's the purity of priests and particularly how the priests now represent God to people and to others. There's the assembly and there's the Sabbath. I mentioned the Sabbath day, the jubilee year when land would be restored again. These are aspects of what worship looks like in life. You know, we, we worship, but, well, let me back up. We think about some of these things in terms of the rules of life in the book of Leviticus and some of them don't make any sense. Let me give you an example. Uh, tithes and offerings to tithe 10%. Some people, I've, I've heard it said before, in fact, I heard it said recently, uh, somebody went to a restaurant, and, and worship in life means you give generously. That also means, by the way, the Christians tip when they go to a restaurant. But somebody said to me, they said, well, God only gets 10%. Why does the waitress get 15%? You know, that's okay. I checked. You can give God 15% too. You go back to some of the other questions in the book of Leviticus. How do I worship God in life? And there he talks about things you should eat. I don't understand some of this. Crickets, locusts, bugs are okay, and bacon is not. Sushi is considered good and acceptable to eat, and yet lobster and crab is out. I don't understand this. These, these rules of worship in life are intended to be reflective. They were given to a people that they would consider these things. They would make distinctions. They would realize that God has made distinctions and God is God and I am the human and I will first of all submit myself to him even if it doesn't make sense. And as I do that, as I submit in the areas that don't seem to make sense to me, I worship in the midst of life. We worship in liturgy. We also worship in life. Let me give you a couple examples of this. A couple of examples of worshiping in life. First of all, going back to the book of Leviticus. Oh, I want to I save some time here. I mentioned, I mentioned the gleaning of corners of the field, that what I have is not merely for me. I leave something of what I have for others as well. That's worship in life, 19 verse 9. 19 verse 15, seeking justice for everybody. This is an interesting one. Look at chapter 19 and verse 15. I'll read it. Leviticus 19.15, do not pervert or twist justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't let the scales of justice swing one way or the other, but justice must be fair and impartial and absolute. Chapter 19, verse 18 summarizes the law this way, and Jesus did the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is worship in life. That is worship on Monday. That is worship 
out in society. We worship God not only in his sanctuary, we worship in society. We worship not only on Sunday, we worship on Monday. That's what the book of Leviticus is telling us about worship. One more place. Let me go to one more. I, uh, Leviticus chapter 20. I'm going I'm to have some fun here. I'm going to mess with you a little. I'm going to, to push your buttons and stretch your categories, okay? Brace yourself. You ready? All right. Leviticus chapter 20. Oh, where did I want to go in chapter 20? Verse 8. I'm going to read from 8 to 13. Just to give us a, a, a law sampler here, okay? Here we go. Consecrate yourselves to be holy because I, the Lord, am your God. Verse 7. Now verse 8. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother, and his blood will be on his own head. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife and he dishonors his father, the man and the woman must be put to death. If a man sleeps, it goes on and on. And then it goes on, verse 13, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of, both of them have done what is detestable, they must be put to death. Their blood will be upon their own head. And it goes on, and the chapter continues on that topic. And first of all, you might want to say, why is God so tied up? Why, why is the law so concerned with who we sleep with? Those, ma- those, those matters of relational purity of relational integrity. Why is there so much said in the book of Leviticus about that? Could I suggest it's because of this? Maybe our faithfulness, the matters of our heart, the matters closest to our core, maybe it's not merely horizontal. Maybe those issues of faithfulness and integrity and purity in relationship impact my heart in ways that affect my relationship of purity and integrity between myself and God. Maybe it's not merely horizontal toward others. Maybe the horizontal also will impact my ability to have relationship in the vertical. And maybe that vertical relationship is to be lived out in ways that show God's glory and show God's character in horizontal relationships. How can I talk about the faithfulness of God if I don't know anything about it in the way that I live, in the way that I love? How can I talk about the way that God continues to love when I'm no longer lovable if I haven't learned something about living in that kind of love? And that's the kind of love that no matter where we are and where we've been, that God would restore us back to through the forgiveness that is in Christ. When you read about the law, don't allow this to ever become an exclusion thing where you don't fit certain categories so you are left out. The sacrifice of Christ leaves nobody out. As far as the east is from the west, so far as our our sins removed from us, your sin and your guilt, he will remember no more. But in that passage that I read, oh, it closed with a big one, big in our culture today. But you know what? As I read that list, there's two other things that concern me much more than the issue of homosexuality. The first, the, the, the passage talked about disrespect of parents by youth. The passage talked about marital infidelity or, or, or adultery. And both of those are far more common in our culture, even in Portland, than the other one is. 
Why is it that we make the other one so much more of a deal within our society? And could it be if we made more out of fidelity, if we made more out of purity, if we spent more of our energy and our effort calling people and restoring one another, not judging, not condemning, but restoring one another back to that, would that give us a much greater credibility as to the righteousness and the forgiveness and the restoration of God in a much more difficult area? You see, as we live in worship, we represent our God and his redemption in ways that can also be graphic and hands-on to the people around us. We have been made to worship. We have been made to worship the Lord in liturgy. We have been made to worship the Lord in life. We've been made to worship on Sunday. We have been made to worship on Monday. We worship the Lord in the sanctuary. We worship the Lord out in society, in the everyday life. I was talking to somebody earlier in the week and describing to them how their loving care of their spouse was worship. They weren't able to come to worship. They were depressed by that because they wanted to come and they felt that they should come, but their spouse needs their care. I said, your loving faithfulness to your spouse at this time, that is your worship. You and I worship not only here, but in life. You have the opportunity, you have the privilege to take the stuff of day to day And offer that up to God. And God, I will submit to you in this area. I will honor you in faithfulness. I will honor you in generosity. I will will turn from wrong and do something right. I will not go there because that does not honor you. And I do that not because there's a rule somewhere. I do that because I want to offer myself to you in that mundane matter. And that, my brothers and sisters, is worship. Worship.